Remain standing. We come to read a portion of our sermon text tonight. You can make your way to Hosea chapter 2. Two weeks ago, we began what should be a pretty brief study, only about six weeks long in the 14 chapters of Hosea, thinking about some of the major theological and gospel themes in this wonderful prophet's ministry. And what we're going to look at tonight is is chapter 2, verse 2, through the end of chapter 3. But what I want to do to get us started is read verse 10 through 15 of chapter 2, as it gives you something of the warning and the wooing that we see in the Lord's word to his people. And then I'll pray that God blesses our study and we'll begin our time together. So Hosea chapter 2, verse 10 through 15. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them. And adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Echor a door of hope. And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at a time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Now, Father, we do ask that this night you would speak to us your words of grace. We are people who gather to listen to you, people who are so often prone to wander and rebel, so often losing our own way as we follow after you. Help us to know something of the amazing and abounding and astounding love that you have for us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago, I was home with the children when one of them was doing their daily math lesson. And he came out and said, Dad, can you help me with this? I don't really understand what it's asking. And it was helping him understand, of course, as these things so often go in math lessons, a very simple concept through these uh, word pictures. And so I began to explain to him what he needed to do in order to figure out the answer. And as some of you can certainly sympathize, you, you just looked at him across the way as, as I was explaining to him what he needed to do, and there was this glazed look that just came over his face, a glazed look that very much communicates Dad, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so I told him, go get a piece of paper and let me show you. So he grabbed a piece of paper and we began to scribble and scratch away. And uh, within a few minutes, it was clear enough that he knew exactly what it was that he needed to do. He just needed to see it, of course. And there are so many things in life, aren't there, that you just need to see. Even if you're not properly a visual learner, but seeing it, looking at the picture, just makes it so much easier. Think about trying to do a puzzle without a puzzle box or the, the picture in front of you. Or even I had someone in the church recently ask me for recommendations on a good 
book on parenting. I said, really the best thing you can do is just go find godly parents in the church and watch them. It's so much easier to see it. Or perhaps if you've ever had a child and you wanted them to learn how to swing a baseball bat, rather than telling them how to swing the bat, you just show them, don't you, how to swing the bat. Because watching the picture helps it make sense. And if you understand what what I'm after here, you you surely can see, I trust in Scripture, how uh, these things are nothing more than reflections of how the Lord so often reveals His truth to us. Because He loves to attach pictures to His revelation, doesn't He, throughout the Bible. I mean, just think of things like covenant signs. You have a rainbow, and you see a rainbow, and you suddenly understand with a degree of experiential knowledge that's altogether different what that means. Circumcision is the same. Baptism and the Lord's Supper is the same. So often the picture settles the truth, situates the truth in our soul in a much more deeply rooted fashion. Now, the reason I tell you that is because, as we saw two weeks ago, what we get in the early chapters of Hosea is a prophetic picture. It's a real-life parable of the relationship between God and his people, a prophetic picture and a parable that's really lived out in the life of Hosea and his wife, a woman we come to find out was called Gomer. Because look back at chapter 1, verse 2. The central command in the Lord's commission to his prophet was, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So, Hosea was, was meant to live out in his experience the reality of the relationship as it was there in the 8th century BC between Yahweh and Israel. Yahweh is the spurned and rejected loving husband who has holy jealousy towards his bride Israel, who in her idolatry has committed nothing more than spiritual adultery. And we saw at the end of chapter 1, even into the beginning of chapter 2, what's further underscoring the the gravity of the moment there in the 8th century BC is the names that God told Hosea to give to the three children that Gomer bore. You might remember we talked about those children's names and how essentially the first child was named No Kingdom, second child was named No Mercy, and the third child was named No People. So imagine meeting this prophet, Hosea. His wife, known by her reputation of promiscuity and prostitution. Children named, they're not my people. I'll have no mercy. Jezreel, no kingdom for them. That was a a picture, a prophetic parable of what was going on with the nation of Israel and Yahweh. And if you you think of that first study that we had a few weeks ago as something like the skeleton. It's it's in our text tonight that we begin to put much more flesh onto that skeleton as we see the true depth of Israel's sin and the corresponding and even much greater depth of God's love for his people. So what we want to consider tonight is what that old hymn sings forth as, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. So we're going to think about redeeming love in three different ways. And the first thing I want you to know about God's love, according to our text, is love warns the sinner. So look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Yahweh says, plead with your mother. 
plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. If you've ever seen these, you know, comedy shows on television, where you have a husband and a wife in a room, and their child is seated on the couch, and the husband and the wife are in maybe a season of discord and disagreement, to such a degree that they don't talk to each other, but they use the child as a messenger. So the dad says to the son sitting there on the couch, hey, tell your mother that I'm going out on an errand. And the mother responds by saying, hey, tell your dad that there's going to be no dinner for him when he gets home later on tonight. And you can kind of like spin out just the difficulty of the relationship. That's meant in such shows or films to be comedic, isn't it? But here it's underscoring, because that's exactly what the Lord is doing in verse 2. He's saying that he doesn't speak to his wife directly. He's speaking through these messengers, almost as though he's speaking through a child to the spouse. That's the degree of breakdown in the relationship. And the reason it's broken down, look again, verse 4. Upon her children I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. So, Yahweh, of course, is pictured in this book, isn't he? Because he is. He's the loving husband of the bride named Israel. He's the holy, jealous husband of the bride named Israel. Because kids, remember, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's a holy jealousy that the Lord has. And you remember that he speaks about even that jealousy in the third commandment. And because of their idolatry, their unrepentance, the nation of Israel is likened to nothing more than a spiritual prostitute, an adulterer, such as the nature of their sin, acting shamefully is what verse 5 says. And if you wanted to know exactly what the shameful actions were at this time in the Lord's mind in the 8th century BC, all you would need to do is scan your eyes through verse 5 through 13 because it's the Lord detailing with some degree of significance for our attention tonight, exactly what it was they were doing. But we can just make a few things in our brief moments or call a few things to our attention. Look at the end of verse 5. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. You can't get around, can you, that, that personal pronoun. My, 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 my. I will go after any God that gives me my wealth. I will go after any God that gives me what I want. I will go after any God that gives me the food that I need. Rejecting, of course, God, who the text will actually say, is the one who gives those things. And in context here, it's clear that they were going after this false god, Baal, who was understood in the ancient Near Eastern world to be this god of fullness and, and fertility, thinking that maybe Baal can give us what we so desperately need. But look at what actually happens according to verse 7. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them first, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. I was talking with a friend of mine recently who was speaking about 
trying to counsel someone that was going through a significant time of spiritual difficulty, and it was a person that was raised in uh, the church, everything I can tell, raised in a godly home. And this now adult in nearly their fourth decade of life has rejected the faith altogether, saying that God just doesn't work for me. I can't get what I want from God. So what's happening there in the ancient Near Eastern world of Israel is not terribly different than it is today, right? So many people misunderstanding that God is to be worshipped. It doesn't work for us. But even maybe hitting more to the heart and hitting more to our home even is verse 7 saying, well, we just want the blessings that God gives. So let's just go back to our first husband. Well, we don't want the blessed one. Let's get what he can give us by way of gifts. We're really not interested in the giver. And what God is basically telling them here in chapter 2 is too late. Because if you just scan your eyes through verse 9 through 13. Kids, if you want to mark up your Bible, just circle the number of times the phrase I will shows up. One after the other. And we can notice them quite clearly. Verse 9, therefore I will take back my grain. Verse 10, I will uncover her lewdness. Verse 11, I will put an end to all her mirth. Verse 12, I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees. The end of verse 12, I will make them a forest and beasts will devour them. Verse 13, I will punish her. And all God is doing is being true to his word. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, he promised covenant curses would fall upon God's people if they forsook him. If they fell into idolatry and didn't repent of it. All God is saying, that which I warned you about centuries ago, it's going to fall on you now. And I do trust that you realize that that true love always warns, doesn't it? You know, kids, it's something to remember. uh, Perhaps as your your parents warned you this week about something. Uh, Even true love understands what it means to make a a righteous threat about potential discipline and punishment. Because there's a holy jealousy fueling God in this moment, and he's saying that because of his truth and faithfulness to his word, he he must punish his people. True love warns sinners. But for those truly called to the Lord, his, his genuine children, that's not the end of their story ever. So the second thing you need to see is that love woos sinners. Love doesn't just warn, love will woo the sinner. Maybe you can think about a husband, and perhaps you've maybe been there in your life before, you've known of people in your life before, or a husband senses that the relationship with his wife is at a climactic point, maybe even a breaking point, and in desire to to maybe restore the affection that used to be there, or or rekindle the love that used to be present. What he decides to do is take her back to a significant place in their past. Maybe the place where he proposed. Or maybe it's the place where they first fell in love, hoping that something of that experience is going to bring them back together in joy and happiness. And that's actually exactly what the Lord says he's going to do with the nation of Israel. Look at verse 14 once again. He says, therefore, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness. Verse 15, I will give her vineyards and make the valley of a corridor of hope 
And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. We're going to go back, Yahweh says, to where it all began. Because if you know your book of Exodus, well, it's there in the book of Exodus that this marriage relationship between Yahweh and Israel, it, it began. There was a covenant that was cut. There was God coming to dwell with his people. There's the consummation of that relationship. He's going to take them back into the wilderness. Because it was, of course, he bringing him out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. It was there in the wilderness that he would bring them into the promised land. And now... He's going to exile them back into the wilderness in order to, to bring them into the promised land without the false idols and the love of idolatry in their hearts. In a similar way, just as in the book of Exodus, he took them out into the wilderness to get Egypt out of their blood. He's now saying, I'm going to send them back into the wilderness to get Baal out of their blood. Look at verse 17. I'll remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered no more. He says, verse 19, there's a time coming, dear wife named Israel, where we will again cross the threshold. That's the way you want to think about verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Maybe you know that that language of a no in the Old Testament, it's the language of intimacy. This relationship's going to be restored. And I'm the one that's going to bring it about as I'm going to woo you back to me. So in chapter 1, oh, we saw these names that are attached to the children of Gomer. No kingdom. No mercy. No people. And God is always in the business, isn't he, of reversing the rebellion and even the righteous justice that we deserve. Because you'll see verse 23 tells us at the end of chapter 2, I will sow for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So love warns. Love woos. Redeeming love thirdly. As the, the scene shifts somewhat suddenly back to Hosea's household and this prophetic picture, we see that love wins the sinner. Because all we get is this very short chapter. It's only five verses long, isn't it? This tiny little scene cut right into the midst of uh, the prophet's word to the people. And it's us finding out in Hosea's household that his wife, Gomer, is nowhere to be found. In context, it seems like she's been gone for quite some time. It's quite clear even in context. She's gone back to a life of promiscuity, prostitution. It's clear also in context that somehow she's become a servant to a master. And look what the Lord commands of Hosea in verse 1 of chapter 3. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. The Lord's love is to be the motivating force behind Hosea's love for his wife. And, and surely that's even helpful for us to recognize that we never 
never, never, never think about God's love for us through the lens of our love for our spouse or our love for our children. Rather, it's our love for our spouse that finds its perfect reflection. God's love for his people. God's love for his children. It's God's pattern and perfection of love that's to compel Hosea to go do something that surely everyone in Hosea's neighborhood would think is absolutely crazy. Go win your wife back. And so notice the first phrase of verse 3. I think it's perhaps one of the most moving phrases I, I dare think in all the Bible, not just this prophet's ministry. He simply says what? Oh, I'm sorry, verse 2. So I bought her. But Hosea, she left you. I'll buy her back. But you know what she's been doing for the last many months, Hosea? I'm going to buy her back. She doesn't want to come back, Hosea. I want to buy her back. Can you imagine the shame that's now attached to your household, Hosea? I'm going to buy her back. Do you really know what she's done? I will buy her back. And there's no stretch in placing the same phrase is there in the lips and upon the mouth of our Lord Jesus is there. Do you know what she has done to you? I'm going to buy her back. Do you know what he did? I'm going to buy her back. Why them? Of all the people in the world, why them? I'm going to buy them back. Because the redemption price here for Hosea is something he scraps together if you see it in verse 2. 15 shekels of silver, a homer, a leftek of barley. Something that pales in comparison, doesn't it? To the Lord Jesus saying, the ransom price and redemption price is my life. I will freely give of my blood for my people, such as my desire to win my people back. Sometimes you, you get something better, don't you? In a picture. Who would have thought Hosea would again buy Gomer? Who would have thought that, that a savior would buy sinners like you? Spiritual adulterers and idolaters that deserve nothing more than his covenantal curse unto all eternity. But redeeming love warns us. A redeeming love, it does, it does woo us. And redeeming love, it ultimately in Christ Jesus, it does win us. I know a pastor that many years ago was reading through the Gospels and what he decided to do was put one of two notations in the margin of his Bible. And one notation was either T-E, uh, one notation or the other notation was T-O. And what he meant by that is any time that Jesus said or did something manifesting his tenderness, he put T-E. Anytime Jesus said or did something manifesting his toughness, he put T-O. And you can, I trust, imagine, after the end of all his study, his gospel pages were full of TEs and TOs everywhere. Because as in Jesus, the lion-like lamb and the lamb-like lion, always tenderly tough and toughly tender. And I want to show you that as we begin to close, even from this text that's before us tonight, because I want you to know another 
Two things about true love. One, true love tolerates no rivals. He, he buys Gomer back, Hosea does. And notice what he says to her in verse 3. You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the horror or belong to another man, so I also will be to you. I'm going to be faithful to you, my bride. You must be faithful to me. Now, doesn't the Lord Jesus say the exact same thing to you? I'm going to be faithful to you. I've bought you back, and now I'm going to begin to work holiness into you, that I might present you without blemish or spot or wrinkle or any such thing, my cleansed bride unto the Savior. I will tolerate no rivals to me in this relationship. Maybe one of the best things you can do tonight is think about those rivals, because we all have them, those rivals in our life for the Lord's adoration and affection coming from us and taking place within us. So true love tolerates no rivals. That's the toughness, isn't it? Well, the tenderness is simply that true love does speak tenderly. If you look back to verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, I'm going I'm to bring her into the wilderness. I'm going to woo her. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. Uh, the original language there is, I'm going to speak to her heart. That's what it says. And don't you know through the preaching of the gospel, the reading of God's word, the, the ministry of the spirit, that's exactly what the Lord loves to do even in nights like this to his people. I'm going to speak to your heart. The question though is, will you respond like he says God's people will respond in verse 15. And she shall answer. I wonder if you have answered this call of redeeming love that's offered to you in Christ Jesus. I hope you have. And if you haven't, you must. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that redeeming love would be our theme. Love that knew no limit. Love that abounds unto us in ways that we cannot fathom or even comprehend. So great is the grace that you have shown us in Christ Jesus, your Son. Give us renewed faithfulness and holiness before you this week. We do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.